reminded as we sang our first hymn this morning, um, we sang that in my first church um, one Sunday, and we went out to dinner, and we had this, this lady that was a fairly jolly uh, person named Mildred in the congregation, and, and uh, she invited us out for dinner that Sunday, and so we went to her house. And we got there, and, and she had never heard the song over a thousand times. I said, I can't imagine how that could be. But anyway, um, she says to me, she says, oh, that was an awful song. She says, I can't control my tongue, but one time I have. I don't eat a thousand of them. <laughs> but, but that song is just that hymn, just such a wonderful, wonderful hymn. And just reminds us, you know, how wonderful it's going to be to be able to just you know, worship God here on earth, but also when we get to heaven and sing praises to Him. Shiloh, what a, what a wonderful gift you gave us this morning, Officer. Thank you so much for sharing, sharing that gift. We uh, are coming to, well, this is the end of our series on Abraham, and then I'm, I'm probably going to do something a little bit different for a little bit to break things up before I come back uh, to deal with Isaac and that part of Genesis, um, but this morning as we come to the end of the life of Abraham, uh, this will just be a very weird message, and so you just need to kind of brace yourself for that, um, and I don't know that I'm very comfortable with it, but I think it's what God wants me to share this morning, so that's what I'm going to do, and uh, we'll just step out by faith and, and leave that. As we look at, the, at, at Genesis chapter 23 to Genesis 25, uh, this morning, these days are the last decades, uh, starting with the life of the, the death of Sarah at the age of 127, and then ending with the death of Abraham at the age of 175. And so he lives for about 38 years after Sarah dies. Now, someone has said that few women admit their age, and few men act yet. Uh, but Sarah is especially rare um, because Sarah has the distinction of being the only woman in the Bible whose age is ever given. Uh, we can be told her age more than once. There are several times that we are told her age. We're told that she's 90 uh, when she has Isaac, and now we are told her age when she dies and all of that. So, but yet, even though she's 127, she is still very much relatively young um, because even at the age of 90, she was still attractive enough and seemed to have discovered the fountain of youth and, and, um, and we have that record in our Bible. So her death comes somewhat unexpectedly. Even Abraham, he wasn't prepared for it. He was away doing other things, and he got the news, and he hurried home to grieve and mourn for Sarah. And so it wasn't something that they were anticipating. It wasn't something they were expecting at all. Abraham lives for another 38 years or so, and then he dies himself. And so um, this morning, we're going to look at the way that Abraham handles the, de the death of his wife, what he does with his life in those last years, and his own death. And so, this is really real life um, that we don't like talking about very much or preaching about, and yet God doesn't ignore it. In fact, he kind of spends three chapters of Genesis on the last years of Abraham. And so we're going to just take a look at that this morning. Let's pray. 
Father God, we come before you today and we just thank you that you are real and that you are a real God who is concerned about real life. It's not just pie in the sky kind of stuff that we deal with from the scriptures all the time. You teach and instruct us in matters of real life. And so, Father, we just come before you this morning. We humble ourselves before you. We ask, Lord, that you would um, teach us from your word. Help us to gather the nuggets of gold that you have for each one of us, whether they're spoken through me or not. But let your spirit speak to us this morning and say something to us that we need to take with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have 20 verses in Genesis about the death of Sarah. But only two of them involve Abraham's response to Sarah's death. The other 18 deal with the purchase of a plot where Sarah is going to be laid and buried. Abraham, as I've already suggested, uh, seems to have been somewhere else at the time of Sarah's death, and he comes home and he mourns her death. It is the only time in all of Scripture that it is recorded that Abraham wept. The only time. He, remember, he sent Ishmael away at Sarah's request, and he was heartbroken, disheartened about that, distraught over that. But never have we ever seen Abraham weep. And he weeps here at his wife's death. There's a statue um, named Emptiness up on the screen, I believe, yes. Um, that was made by a grieving parent, which portrays the feeling of grief. Uh, and, and in this case, not of a spouse, but of a child, and how empty people can feel. And it's just a reminder for us, and I share that, that um, statue with you, emptiness with you this morning, just to remind you that as the body of Christ, when there are people who have lost a loved one, a spouse or a child or something else, there's an emptiness in their life that we need to reach out and we need to try to meet that need. And uh, I can't do it by myself. You can't do it by yourself. But together, the body of Christ needs to be there for them and help them through that time. Um, when someone is going through grief, your presence is much, much more important than any of your words. Because during that time, during real grief, you cannot process words. You process presence. You're not going to say anything that's going to help them anyway at that point. <laughs> Being there is what we process. Being there with them, walking through life with them at that time is what is what they really need. Words and advice don't make a lot of sense. The presence and
counseling center in Florida, and he describes a grieving. He describes grieving as the process of letting go of things that we have attached ourselves to. And that can be a wide variety of things. It can be maybe a place where we've lived uh, for a long time. It might be certain things that all of a sudden are gone. People have lost a lot of things that they were attached to and all the flooding cuts out. Um, it can be people. Um, there can be all kinds of things that we grieve as we let go of things that we become attached to. But one of the things that Dr. Green said to us um, in that class, he says, we need to learn to grieve quickly over the lesser things in our life. So that when the big losses in life come, that we can move past that without getting completely derailed in our life. So I want to challenge you. I want you to think about this. Are there things in your life that you lose? Sometimes it's, you know, it's, as we age, we lose the ability to do certain things that we used to just do without thinking. I know. I'm there. And, and the question is, can we adjust to that process of grief so that when the big things hit us, we can adjust to those, the grieving process in that? Can we allow certain things, can we allow ourselves to lose things that we've always come on to and always loved? When those things disappear, even though they're lesser things than a spouse or a child or something like that, can we allow ourselves to grieve and grieve quickly and move on with our lives? So that's something for us to think about. Now, grief often forces us into decisions that we are not ready for in life. Abraham, you'll notice, here we have Abraham dealing with the death of his, his spouse. He's been married to for a long time. And what is she, what is he doing? He spends 18 verses out of 20 dealing with trying to buy property to bury his wife. Now, quite frankly, that could have been handled ahead of time. And there are a lot of things that sometimes that you and I, we need to handle ahead of time. There are things that maybe you think, well, you know, that's 10 years, that's 30 years down the road, and maybe there's things that maybe you need to pull together now. I need to start thinking about it, planning for it, making arrangements for it, that you just keep procrastinating on and not taking care of. We're not having those uncomfortable conversations because we just keep pushing it down the road. So here he is. He's trying to figure out what to do with Sarah, and he's in this foreign land. He's in, he's in Hittite, Canaanite country. It's, it's land that God has promised to Abraham. It's land that God has said, Abraham, this is all going to be your land, the land of the descendants of yours. But it's not his land yet. It belongs to the Hittites. It belongs to the Canaanites. He's just there. He's just a soul, uh, you know, a pilgrim. <laughs> he's just living there. But it's not his land, and he doesn't own any land. He doesn't own any land to bury his wife. And so Abraham approached the Hittites at the city gate, and he purchased this burial plot for himself and for his family. 
land again that God had promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. And Abraham made the legal transaction according to the customs of his day. And even though he was a stranger and an alien there, he went ahead and got property there. Now, God gave Abraham favor with the Hittites and with the Canaanites. Uh, they respected Abraham. They had come to find this man uh, to be a man of integrity and character, and they even referred to him in this chapter as, as a prince. And at first, it's kind of hard to see in our English Bibles, but at first they offered him a borrowed grave. And that kind of seemed totally ridiculous in our culture. But if you go to the Middle East, that is a very, very common practice. You use a cave or a, a grave. Uh, you go to Israel, and this is the way it's done over there. You you own, you rent, basically. You, you, you pay to use a, a burial plot or a cave, and you pay for so many years to use that. <laughs> and then it's resold and someone else uses it, and they take your bones in at that point, and, and uh, they make them smaller, and, you know, put them off in a little box, or that kind of thing, it's kind of like you do with cremation, but property gets used again and again and again throughout different generations. In much of the world, that's not the way we do it here at all, but that's the, that's the context, the biblical context of what we see here. And so they offer Abraham borrowed land. They said, well, you can just, uh, you can use this. It, it belongs to our family, but you can use it. Um, if something happens, we can just, you know, share, share it or whatever. So they offer that to him. And Abraham, in that culture, would have been well within his rights to say, yeah, that would work. But Abraham did not do that. Abraham wanted to buy something permanent a permanent place there for his life because he wanted to act by the promise of God that God had given to him. And God had told him that this land would be his and that it would be his as a permanent possession of his descendants. And so he wanted to act on that, even in the death of his wife. And so he's acting out on that, on that promise, even in the grief um, that he's experiencing. He was, in essence, staking a claim on the land that God had promised him, uh, kind of like uh, the pioneers came out and staked claim out in this part of the country. So Abraham was there among the Hittites, and he was staking his claim by buying that property as a permanent property for his way to lay in and for him to lay in when he died. So Ephraim, one of the Hittites, offers to give Abraham the cave. And he says, you know, you can also not only have my cave, but you can also have the field in front of it. And, you know, he, the way they bartered and all of that in that Middle East culture, uh, he expected that Abraham would want to pay for it, but Ephraim was willing just to give it to him. So Ephraim handles that with a great deal of, of courtesy. He doesn't make, doesn't push Abraham in this grieving time uh, in that bartering process, but rather he tells him, listen, this is the value of this field in this cave. You can have it, I would give it to you, but this is the value of it. You can do what you want. And Abraham paid him 
He just paid what he needed to pay for the death of his wife to give her that land to Laban. Where Abraham invested his money was where he wanted his descendants to spend their future. And so he was thinking about the future even as he was dealing with the present and the loss of his wife. He was thinking about, this is where I want my descendants and this is the the, the landscape I'm going to make for my descendants in that. In the last decades of our lives, we need to give thought to the futures that we are wanting to shape for those that we are leaving behind. What, what can we do and how can we shape the futures of the lives of those that we love that are leaving behind? So I want to talk to you a little bit about leaving a legacy uh, this morning. We read in our text that after Sarah's death, Abraham concerned himself with his legacy, taking care of the things that would really matter after he died himself. He did a couple of things in Genesis chapter 24. Um, first, he spent that chapter really working to find a wife for Isaac, who was not a Canaanite, but from Abraham's own people. And then, you know, that brought comfort to Isaac in the loss of his own mother. And it says after he married, uh, after Isaac had a wife, he was comforted. And he moved into the Canaan which was also the custom uh, of that day. And, and the least. So, so anyway... He, he does all that. Now, this is not what you and I would do. You don't need to plan uh, and, and find spouses for your children and, and tell who they're going to marry. That's not how we do it here. But that's what they do in that culture. And that's what Abraham concerned himself with, was finding the right spouse for his son. Because the parents do pick out the spouses uh, in that culture. And then secondly, Abraham provided for Ishmael, remember, the son he had with Hagar, and he also provided for the descendants of, of the, the concubines uh, that he had children with, and Keturah, because at some point or another he had married Keturah. The scripture's not real clear, the Hebrew especially is not clear, as to whether Keturah came before uh, Sarah's death, or after, it seems a little bit odd when you stop to think about it, that he would have six children after Sarah's death, uh, when he was considered too old to have uh, children by Sarah many years earlier. Uh, so when you look at that, but anyway, here you have Abraham decided to take care of his descendants. And so he does things while he's alive to take care of them because after he's dead, all this inheritance he's planning to, to give to Isaac. And so he takes care, provides for, uh, takes care of all their needs, all of that for Ishmael and his other descendants by concubines. And then Abraham protected Isaac. And he protected his legacy by setting Ishmael away and the other descendants away. And so they focused these last years on Isaac and what he wanted to do with Isaac. Abraham focused on his family in the last years of his life. And, and it's interesting.
interesting that when Abraham dies in, in Genesis chapter 25, Ishmael, who has been, he's been gone for a long time, but Ishmael at the age of 89 comes back to help with the funeral of his father Abraham. And you see how even in those arrangements that Abraham had probably already arranged and all that, uh, they came back together as family to bury Abraham, their father. Now John Maxwell says, a legacy is created only when a person puts his organization, and I might add descendants, um, into a position to do great things without him. So what can you enable your children to do without you. And sometimes we need to think through those kind of issues in our life when we have time with them, especially in our later years. What words can I give them? What example can I give them? What can I do to enable them to do well after I'm gone? And I've had a number of conversations, great conversations with some of you um, in the last year, when you're dealing with those kind of issues and wondering, what can I do best for my children in these years in my life? One of the important things, most important things to remember is that the legacy that you and I live will be primarily the legacy we leave, we leave behind for our children. The greatest legacy that you can ever leave your is the way that you live your life. Now, there's five, could be, I'm going to give you five elements of legacy. One is a personal legacy uh, that just deals with identity. Do you help your children know who they are? Do they have a sense of their identity and who they are? Do they have a sense of integrity and character um, is there an intellectual uh, legacy? Do they have the, you know, an interest in learning, being curious, and, and moving on with life? Those kind of things. Personal legacy, we are passing that on. And then there's family legacy. And that just comes down to, do you help your family feel like they belong to a family? Do you help them feel like that there's a sense of belonging? Uh, in their life? Is there a, a sense of community wisdom that you pass on to your children? <laughs> One of the great uh, things that and Jonathan Edwards was a, was a great um, preacher uh, back at the American Revolution and all of that. But 150 years after his death, his legacy included one U.S. Vice President, three U.S. Senators, three Governors, three Mayors, 80 Public Servants, three College Presidents, 65 Professors, 30 Judges, 100 Attorneys, and 100 Commissioners. <laughs> Can you imagine the legacy that, that Jonathan Edwards, the great, one of the great preachers of the, the Revolution, um, passed on in the way that he lived his life and the influence that he had on the coming generations. Now, we probably aren't going to accomplish that. I know I'm not. But it's helped 
stewardship of our lives in that here and now. But what kind of stewardship? What are we? What are we going to pass on? What's going to live after us in our children? And we ought to give thought to that today in our lives. There is also financial uh, legacy, um, teaching money management, and having financial freedom in their lives and all of that. Um, in regard to financial legacy, we need to make decisions that, that raise children who can be productive and content. If they're not content, um, you will never ever leave them enough money for them to become content. And, and one of the things that we need to do in our culture is we need to raise children who can learn to be content without having everything they want. See, it's not just about passing on money. It's about learning to raise children who can be content in life without having everything they want. Because fact is, all of us know that we don't all have everything we want. So you might as well learn to be content having less than everything you want. And one of the greatest things you can do with children is help them learn to manage desire with need.
any newspapers, any magazines, any books dated later than 1959. And so everything they had with them had to be from 20 years uh, earlier in their life. Everything in their environment was designed to make them see the world through the lens of being 55 years of age instead of 75. And they were told that they had to dress like they were 55. And they had to act as if they were 55. Before that retreat started, the men were tested on every aspect uh, that we assume deteriorates with age. Physical strength, posture, perception, cognition, short-term memory, and all these kind of things. And after the retreat, most of the men had improved in every category uh, and, and appeared on average to be three years younger than they were when they entered the retreat a week earlier. And, and so the lesson of that whole study um, was that how you perceive yourself has an effect on the aging process itself. And so one of the first lessons about aging is don't just always talk yourself old. Don't always just think yourself old. Because in the process, you become older. As you talk and act and think yourself old, you just become older quicker. So, um, from science, that's where that came from. So. Now, some suggestions. Staying positive as long you know, just focus on being positive. There are studies out there that tell us that positive people live 7.5 years longer than negative people. The unfortunate thing is that it's the happy people that get, you know, they get a longer life for it. The negative people, at least, I guess there are other losers. So, be positive. Tom Toole um, was a Presbyterian friend of mine, and he said that he was celebrating the 100th birthday party of a parishioner, and he asked him uh, what was good about being 100 years old. And the parishioner looked at him, and he says, well, at 100, there's no longer any peer pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Richard said, you don't stop laughing when you grow old. You grow old when you stop laughing. One of the other things you can do is find three to five core pursuits in your life. Don't just retire and do nothing. Find something in your life, some activities, some interests in your life, and some for some reason, if you know, that number three to five core interests it is they tell us it's very important, but I, I'm telling you, just finding one will do an amazing thing. Find something that you're interested in, stay involved in life, and then develop a social network of friends, get around there, do something with other people, and then obviously practice healthy habits. John Maxwell says when he turned um, 60, he started evaluating his life, and he, and he started looking at people that were older than him, and he kind of summarized some things that he thought that they did, and then he said, and so these are things that I really need to do, and he said, you know, first of all, 
he said uh, up on the screen, he said, we count as we get older, become boring. And, and he said, so as I get older, one of the chief primary disciplines of my life is to foster curiosity, just be curious about things, start asking questions again. Because as we get older, sometimes we just stop asking questions. We stop getting curious about life. And as long as God has given us breath, we ought to be curious about it. We ought to be learning and growing and stretching ourselves. Uh, when you start asking questions, you've lost interest in life and you just continue learning. One of the other things is we can become complacent. And we just get, okay, well, this is how things are going to be now. And, and that kind of creeps into our life. And he said, so he says, one of the things we have to do as we get older is we have to raise the ball. And we have to um, stop accepting lower standards uh, and just become complacent. We have to raise the ball and decide, no, I'm going to shoot for this. I'm going to aim for this. Uh, and still set some goals that I might not reach, but I'm still going to set the goals. And a lot of times we just quit setting goals and we quit trying to attempt things. And then he said we need to become other people-centered because as we age and more and more things don't work and more and more things hurt and it becomes harder to take two steps down to the main floor and all those kind of things that happen in our lives as we age, we become naturally more selfish and we think about ourselves. Because when you don't hurt, you don't think about it. <laughs> but as we hurt, we naturally think about it. When you're in pain, you think about yourself. All those kind of things that happen and we can naturally become very self-absorbed people who really think about ourselves and that's about all we think about. And so he says, as we age, we really have to keep and intentionally keep our focus on other people around us. Focus on others. Here's another one. We have to be posture conscious. As we age, myself included, we just tend to slouch a lot more than we used to. We don't have the kindergarten teacher telling us to sit up straight <laughs> in our lives. And, and we just kind of slouch. I, I see some of you are sitting up straight. Uh, <laughs> it's important as we age that we give attention to some of those kind of things and, and stand tall. Because a lot of times, just standing tall, you'll look younger. That's harder to do as you get older. But you have to put some effort into it. And then focus on today. Because a lot of times as we age, we start talking about yesterday. I notice myself doing that more and more. But we need to talk about today. What am I going to do today? What am I thinking about today? What am I dreaming about tomorrow? Help your mind make those changes because that, that all those things just kind of creep into us and we don't realize they're happening in our life unless somebody jolts us and reminds us. So when he turned 60, John Maxwell wrote an, did an evaluation of his life, and he wrote this prayer that I closed out this morning. Lord, as I grow older, I would like to be known as available. Rather than a hard worker, available. Compassionate. More than competent. Content. Not 
really. Generous instead of rich. Gentle over being powerful. Listener more than a great communicator. Loving versus quick or bright. Reliable, not famous. Sacrificial instead of successful. Self-control rather than exciting. Thoughtful, more than gifted. I want to be a foot washer. It's a great prayer, and if some of you want that for me, I'm sure I can get copies of that to you. But uh, just a challenge for all of us, and I know a lot of you are decades away from getting older. But tomorrow you're going to be a day older than you were today. Just got to do this morning. And it just clock keeps ticking. And pretty soon you find yourself there. And, and I, I want to close by saying, you know, John Wesley, his last words of his life, the last words he breathed were, best of all, God is with us. Isaac inherited everything that Abraham, that belonged to Abraham. And the New Testament says, that if we are children of Abraham, that you and I will inherit everything that belongs to Abraham. If we are heirs of Christ, you and I inherit eternal salvation and fellowship with God in heaven. Revelation 21 verse 7 says that Jesus says to those that overcome, who are victorious, they will inherit Abraham lived the last years of his life preserving and protecting that inheritance for son Isaac. The greatest thing you can do with your life is make sure that you have a relationship with Jesus. Make sure that you are going